February 12, 1908, six teams in six different cars were committed to making history by traveling from New York to Paris in an automobile. It was a ridiculous idea. They began with excitement, determination, and the precise amount of naive overconfidence it takes to throw yourself into a colossal endeavor completely unprepared. Halfway through, three teams were left, with only one of them, the Italian Zeust, having maintained the same crew throughout what had not been an exciting, dashing adventure, but rather a test on how much unpredictable disaster and frustration a person could take while stuck in a car with three other people. If you stayed in this race for the first three episodes, you already know nothing had gone as planned. The route had changed, the cars had relied on trains, horses, railroad tracks, and the kindness of strangers to make it through. Instead of taking the original, obviously impossible route through Canada and Alaska, the course veered through Japan. Instead of a historic drive across the ice of the Bering Strait, the cars had been loaded on freighters and shipped across the Pacific from Seattle. Now, the grizzled, weather-beaten, homesick crews were in Vladivostok, Russia, and their route through Siberia had changed with the rest of the course. It was now an unknown, dangerous trail, flooded, roadless, and full of bandits, which is why no one had ever even attempted driving an automobile through it before. Most agreed it couldn't be done. The teams of the Italian Zeust, American Thomas Flyer, and German Protos were doing everything they could to prepare for the second half of this race. The first half had been a humbling, erratic series of mishaps. The second half would be too, and now, sharpened by the twin razors of life experience and the ability to learn from failure, they were as prepared as anyone could be. Whatever was going to happen to them, be it death, failure, or unlikely victory, would be done with the world watching them from afar, interested and eager to see what was going to happen to these bold, mad adventurers. In late May, in the port town of Vladivostok, Russia, the last stop on the Trans-Siberian Railway, three teams and three cars set out, once again, to make history. Let's finish this race. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. The three remaining teams all agreed to leave from Vladivostok on the same day. This would give everyone the chance to start the race fresh. Well, mostly. The Americans were getting a 15-day bonus for being the only car to reach Alaska, and the Germans were getting a 15-day penalty for shipping their car on a train from Utah to Seattle, Washington, which had allowed them to skip somewhere around 1,700 miles of the race due to the wildly meandering course taken by the other cars. Some sources, like the New York Times, say the distance skipped by the Protos was even longer than that 1,700 miles. The French Motoblock team had been disqualified for putting their car on a train from Iowa to San Francisco, but it was ruled there had been some honest confusion about what was and wasn't allowed in the case of the Protos. 
Plus, the race was already down to three cars. Throwing out the Protoss would make the story less interesting, and the papers probably wouldn't sell as well. So a 15-day penalty was placed on the Germans. After the Americans had arrived in Russia, the Thomas Company, which had entered the Thomas Flyer, sent a message to George Schuster, their captain and driver. The factory told them to consider the German Protoss a non-entry. The Thomas Company was planning to protest the German car's legitimacy, since it had skipped such a huge stretch of the course, and they weren't satisfied with a mere 15-day penalty. They wanted the German car disqualified. Schuster ignored them. He believed the Protoss had just as much a reason and a right to be there as his team. Plus, only half the original entries were left. If Schuster was going to win, he would need someone to race against. The race officials agreed. Ultimately, the Thomas Company's protest of the German team would come to nothing. Because of the 15-day bonus the Americans had received, it meant if anyone was going to beat them, they had to do it by 16 days. Unless they were on the German team, then they'd have to do it by 31. But so far, mechanical issues had plagued this race, and sitting around waiting for parts for weeks was not unheard of. It wasn't even unexpected. And in Siberia, access to factory parts and even fuel would be an issue. For this reason, teams had shipped both gasoline and car parts ahead of them to bigger towns, anticipating a need for them. That would prove to be a wise decision. They had learned their lesson from the first 11,800 miles. All these vehicles had been pushed through a gauntlet of wear and tear that no car of the time was built to withstand. By now, all of them had had parts replaced and mended. These were no longer the chic sports cars they had once been. Now they were war horses, scrappy, scarred, and itching for another battle. When the Protoss rolled up, ready and loaded, the word Chicago in huge block letters was written across the hood. The hurried work of a race fan in Illinois, thousands of miles ago. All the cars had names and initials scribbled across them, marks left by eager fans wanting in some part to be a part of this historic race. May 20th was the agreed-upon start date. That was pushed back to May 22nd. But on that start date, as soon as Schuster started the engine, the flyer's clutch decided to stop working. The American car wouldn't have been able to crawl out of Vladivostok. Schuster sent a message to Lieutenant Koppen of the German team, asking him to wait just a couple more hours to start the race until the flyer could be repaired. But Koppen decided he'd waited long enough. He dismissed the message and set off alone. His impatience was awarded with imminent inconvenience, as it so often is. He drove into a brook a mile and a half up the road, and that was as far as he would make it that day. The Italian Zeus was having its own issues. For once, they weren't mechanical. The team had gone back and forth with the Zeus factory back in Italy about whether the race was winnable or if it was worth the enormous expenditure it had already incurred. The team's driver, Sir Tori, had quit the race three times, which had sent mixed signals to the factory, and their willingness to fund this failing endeavor was waning. The Americans and Germans couldn't wait for the Italian team to work out their budgetary issues. 
The spring thaw was well underway, and the countryside was becoming so flooded with seasonal rain and melting frost that every day spent waiting was a missed opportunity at a decent start. The Zeus factory finally agreed to a compromise. First, it ordered their driver, Sertori, to come home. He was obviously miserable and overworked, and the factory wanted to pull him from the race. Second, the factory would now only assume half the expenses. The other half would come from Russian nobleman Baron Edward Scheinvogel. Footing what would surely be a huge bill wasn't all something the noble was doing out of the goodness of his heart. He wanted to drive. To take his place at the wheel for this historic race. He would meet the Italians in Irkutsk and drive the remainder of the way to Paris. It wasn't a deal the Italian team loved, especially Sertori, who was now heading home, but it was better than not racing at all. Scarfoglio wrote that Sertori was inconsolable as his ship pulled away from the dock. He wrote, quote, We, the car, and the journey had entered into his life like a wedge and become part of his existence, one of its necessary constituent elements. Now that he is leaving us, he can scarcely contain his grief, unquote. Out of everyone who wrote on this journey, Scarfoglio had a way with words that was so beautiful, you can still feel what he was experiencing 115 years ago. He was a journalist, after all, and it shows. The two remaining Italians were left in Vladivostok by the other teams. The two felt vulnerable, out of place, and uneasy after the others left. Vladivostok was relatively new in 1908, having been founded as a military outpost in the late 19th century, and it still retained a wild feeling. The two men stuck together, eating, sleeping, and refusing to leave their hotel unless it was together, arm in arm. Scarfoglio wrote it was on account of a, quote, instinctive fear that one may be snatched away and leave the other alone. The Italians left Vladivostok on June 5th, two weeks after the other teams. In that time, both the Americans and Germans had found the course in Siberia just as relentlessly difficult as it had been in the States, if not more so. In the American car, George Schuster was driving. He was the only original competitor left in the flyer who had started with it in Times Square. With him were George Miller, another mechanic who had joined the team in Buffalo, a reporter taking notes for the papers named George McAdam. He was the latest in a string of reporters who had ridden with the flyer. This meant three out of the four crew members in the flyer were all named George. Lastly, there was the Norwegian-born Hendrik Hansen, a man who could speak English, German, French, Chinese, and Russian. They would be relying heavily upon his communication skills throughout the Siberian leg of the journey. They were thankful to finally have a reason to enjoy his company. Hansen wasn't the easiest person to get along with. Originally, he had been with the French de Dion team until he and its captain, Borsier saint Chaffray had declared a duel on a particularly frustrating day. saint Chaffray ended up firing him in lieu of shooting him, and that was when Hansen had arranged a seat in the Thomas Flyer, effectively switching teams. The consensus on Hansen seemed to be that he was annoying, but necessary. 
The German Protoss was captained by Hans Koppen, a lieutenant in the Prussian army, eager to prove himself. Like Schuster, he was the sole remaining original competitor in his vehicle. His previous team, who he did not get along with, had left him thousands of miles ago in Chicago. Now he was with two new teammates, Kasper Neuberger and Robert Fuchs, whom he had just met for the first time in Vladivostok. They were joined by Rittmeister von Albrecht, a young and enthusiastic railway employee who spoke the language and could serve as an interpreter. He would ride with them at least part of the way through Siberia, as long as he could stand it. After driving into that brook on day one, the Protoss had to be rescued by helpful bystanders. They grabbed wooden planks and constructed a makeshift bridge so the car could be hauled out of the water. Since then, the course hadn't gotten any easier. Water and mud were the biggest issues so far. Almost every day it rained on top of the floods. Bogs were everywhere, and they couldn't tell if the puddle ahead was actually a puddle or another water-filled ditch from which they would need rescue. A couple days in, the Germans found themselves submerged over the wheels in a bog. They knew trying to pull the car out themselves was useless. Just as they were readying to find help, they heard the approaching hum of an engine. It was Schuster driving the Thomas Flyer. Despite their early lead, the Americans had caught up with the German car. Schuster wanted to just keep driving. Good sportsmanship in this race had been all but abandoned within the first few days. Plus, Copen had refused to delay his start time when the Flyer had mechanical issues. However, Hansen insisted they help the stranded team, and Schuster obliged. A rope was tied between the two cars, and the Protoss was pulled free. Copen thanked them by sharing a coveted bottle of champagne, momentarily putting the competition on hold for one luxurious glass of bubbly. By the way, I have to plug my main source one more time. That's the incredibly engaging and researched book by Julie M. Fenster called The Race of the Century, the heroic true story of the 1908 New York to Paris auto race. It has everything I'm going over and more, so be sure to check it out. It and all my other sources are, as always, in the show notes. Not far up the road, after the Flyers' heroic rescue, the Americans became trapped themselves in a bog. Since the Germans had taken a different route, they would not be able to return the favor of aid. Hansen, the only person in the car who could speak Russian, went for help. He returned with 40 Russian soldiers who helped free the car. Hansen was already proving his worth. There was no shortage of Russian soldiers in the area. They were sprinkled throughout the countryside around every 10 miles or so. This was for two big reasons. One, the railroad was bringing infrastructure and settlements, cutting through what was still a wild nomadic landscape. Second, there were raiders, known as the Tungus. According to Fenster, they were remote descendants of the Huns, and they were not happy with the changes brought by the railroad. There were two different factions the soldiers were concerned with. First were marauders, who would descend upon towns in the hundreds, pillaging and protesting the development of Russia. Second were robbers, bandits. They worked in smaller groups and were often more violent, even to other Tungus. 
According to Fenster, just that year, 30 bodies had been found thawing in a Tungu's winter outpost. All of them had been murdered by bandits. The warnings the teams had been given about the dangers of Siberia were true, and exceptionally worrisome. Especially since the marauders and bandits knew the 1908 New York to Paris auto race was currently being run in their territory. The racers didn't know it, but around the time the soldiers were rescuing the flyer, three Tungu's spies had been captured. They said they knew about the race and fully believed they could secure a hefty ransom by kidnapping the competitors. The contestants were targets. Every one of them knew this, and a constant unease enveloped the race throughout this region. Even so, Schuster was more concerned with news of where the German team was, rather than news of the bandits. The Zeust was still in Vladivostok, but Copen and his Protos were proving to be much more competition than they had the first half of the race. Keeping up with them was a constant itch in Schuster's mind that he just couldn't seem to scratch. In the U.S., when the roads or countryside where there were no roads proved impassable, the teams were given permission to drive on the train tracks. The engineers who designed the Trans-Siberian Railway knew how devastating the spring thaw and rains could be. For that reason, they built the rails on a 15-foot-high embankment, clear of the bogs and floods. Using them would allow the teams to cover much more ground. Without them, the Americans were virtually crawling through Siberia. Team members took turns walking in front of the cars, waiting in the murky water to make sure the way forward was safe. This put them at the pace of a cautiously slow walk. The floods made it impossible to know where the road actually was. After two days of trudging through thick mud this way, the Americans realized not only were they stuck and sinking, they were in the middle of a huge stream, the bank of which was 30 feet away on both sides. Some local farmers who had never seen a car before helped pull the flyer from the stream. Schuster was told the road ahead was even worse than the stream where they had just been rescued. There was no way forward, not for a car in 1908. There was nothing for the Americans to do but turn around. They begrudgingly retraced a painstaking waterlogged route that had taken them two days to cover. They reached the town of Nikolsk, the same one they'd left only 48 hours previously. There, they finally received some long-awaited news on the progress of the German car. It had left Nikolsk that morning, and it was using the train tracks. The Americans were now a whole day behind the Germans. Lieutenant Copen had asked for permission to use the rails the night before, and it had been granted. It wasn't easy in the days before power steering to keep a car on the rough, bouncing tracks. According to Fenster, every 15 minutes or so, they would have to switch drivers because just keeping the car steady along the tracks took a monumental amount of effort. The right wheels were on the outside of the tracks, with the left wheels bouncing along through the middle. Doing all this while dodging trains was backbreakingly brutal, but it was still better than wading through the water by foot across Siberia. Schuster asked for permission to use the railway as well, and his request was also granted. Now, he and his team had quite a bit of catching up to do. 
Meanwhile, the Zeust, which had been parked in Vladivostok while the others vied with mud and trains, finally joined the race. They were 450 slow-going and soggy miles behind. Before Scarfoglio and Haga left, without the now homebound Sertori, they weren't totally alone. They had been able to find an interpreter who agreed to ride along with them. This would be an invaluable addition, since although Siberia was a diverse place with many languages spread out over its great expanse, Italian wasn't typically one of them. The ability to communicate brought a bit of much-needed comfort, and although the Italians knew they were impossibly behind, they were content in knowing they were making better time over the pockmarked and flooded countryside than either the Germans or American teams had. They prided themselves, too, on the fact that they decided to refrain from using the Siberian train tracks as the others had, believing that was a somewhat underhanded way to cover ground. However, by the time the Italians reached the area where the flyer had been forced to turn around, the flooding had become even more dire. The Usuri River had swollen well beyond its normal boundaries, and the Italians, too, found themselves inching ahead in two feet of water, with one of them walking in front of the car, searching for ditches and holes beneath the floodwaters. That two feet of water quickly creeped up, higher and higher, until the Zeus was trapped in a cold, putrid, rising swell of floodwater. They were stuck, with dead animals and debris floating everywhere around them. Their interpreter began to panic when his leg was stabbed by the horn of a dead bull. The three of them climbed up as high as they could into the luggage compartment and began wondering if they would need to swim to safety. But none of them could bring themselves to swim through the rancid water. They sat there, huddled together, until at 5 a.m. the water began to slowly recede. Finally, it sank back down far enough for them to start the engine. It was one of the worst nights of their lives. After that, they decided it was okay for them to use the train tracks. On the train tracks of the Trans-Siberian Railway, the Americans and the Thomas Flyer were still behind the Germans, but were making decent time until they heard a funny noise coming from the engine. It was followed by a huge clap. Schuster stopped the car. Their transmission casing had cracked open. Their driving pinion had also detached, and now oil was leaking everywhere, all over the ground. They were, for lack of a more poetic term, completely screwed. They couldn't go any further. Driving over train tracks for hundreds of miles would be hard on any car built today. For an early auto in 1908, mechanical failure had only been a matter of time. Schuster and Miller were both excellent mechanics. Most of the time, they could fix whatever needed fixing and get back on the road. Not this time. They needed new parts to fix the flyer, and those were nowhere close to where they were. First, they hauled the car off the tracks so their journey wouldn't end with the broad end of an oncoming freight train. Then, Schuster and the reporter McAdam set out on a 15-mile walk to the nearest town. I don't know why they didn't take Hansen. 
the one man in the car who actually spoke Russian. Because when they got to town, none of the railroad officials could understand a word they said. Schuster could think of only one other option. He told McAdam to stay in town and grab as much food as he could to take back to the others since their supply was running low. He did this, though their meals of hard-boiled eggs and half-edible bread crusts weren't something any of them ever looked forward to. But none of them could keep down any of the prepared food they had found, which meant eggs and bread would sustain them on the road. Meanwhile, Schuster sent off to find an ally. The French paper, Le Matin, was, along with the New York Times, one of the race's sponsors. They sent an employee of theirs to Russia, a Monsieur Félix Neuville, to aid the racers in any way he could. Félix was short, pudgy, bald, and always in a three-piece suit. He spoke every language there was in the region, and as the representative of a huge media outlet, was able to negotiate always successfully in one way or another with anyone he needed to. The feeling I get when reading about Felix in Fenster's book is that he had the energy and confidence of a well-connected member of the mob, but was so good at what he did, so diplomatically skilled, that he never had the need to accomplish anything illegitimately. But maybe he could've. He also didn't take sides with any of the teams. He was an unbiased resource for everyone. He'd already helped the Zeus team with some fuel issues in Vladivostok. Luckily for Schuster, Felix was in town. The two went back to speak with the railway officials. Felix arranged for the two of them to take a 300-mile journey by train to the city of Harbin. Schuster had shipped several parts to the city previously, correctly anticipating he would need them. He'd just been hoping he wouldn't need them this soon. When he and Felix arrived in Harbin, they were delighted to find the parts had actually made it there safely. While there, Schuster used the opportunity to send a cabled message to the Thomas factory in Buffalo, New York, telling them to express ship a new transmission further down the route. An express shipment would take a minimum of two and a half weeks, but Schuster wasn't taking any chances. After sending the cable, he left to make the 300-mile return journey, followed by the 15-mile walk back to his team. That team was currently stranded on the side of the train tracks with their wounded car. They had made a makeshift tent out of coats and bits of canvas they stretched out across some logs. It was an interesting spectacle for train passengers to see three foreigners huddled up on the side of the tracks. A nice respite from the normal scenery. After McAdam had rejoined them with a couple of hired hands hauling a handcart full of food, they had sent all their excess baggage with the workers to be shipped ahead of them in order to reduce weight. That seemed like a good idea, until the three of them were hit with hail and freezing rain. A series of storms inundated them for the next three days, and they didn't have their extra clothes or supplies to help keep dry. They set up an impromptu kitchen and lit a fire to stay warm. McAdam wrote of the first night in camp, quote, The night was melancholy, and the only noise was the frog chorus. Songs failed to relieve the loneliness. Because of the threat of bandits, one of them had to keep watch at all times. Their hearts nearly dropped from their chests when they heard booming footsteps approaching. 
All three of them sat up, ready to fight for their lives. Fortunately, soldiers had found them before any bandits had. Two soldiers with three dogs burst into their camp. Like Frodo trying to avoid being spotted by the Nazgul, the three soldiers stumped out their campfire, telling them it was a beacon alerting everyone to their whereabouts. If you get that reference, we can totally be friends. The three waited, now fireless and soaking wet, for five days, eating bread and boiled eggs in cold misery. Schuster finally arrived with the parts they needed, and he and Miller fixed the car. The three Georges and their Hansen were happy to be back in their rolling home. The sound of the engine starting after so long was truly a sweet song. That five days had cost the Americans. The Germans had taken an even greater lead while they had been stranded, and their leader, Copen was determined to increase it. The tracks were hard on the Protoss, too, and driving was often a dark venture since their last set of headlights had fallen off thousands of miles ago, somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. I wonder if anyone has ever found them, or seen them and walked right by, thinking they were nothing but bits of old, rusted garbage. All three teams knew that without permission to use the Trans-Siberian tracks, making it as far as they had would have been impossible. That's why it was so devastating when they received a message from the railway telling them they were no longer allowing them to use them. The cars were causing serious delays on the railway. There was also the possibility that at some point a crash could occur. The hazards and delays were more of a concern for the railway authorities than a race across their country that didn't even have a Russian team. Schuster messaged Felix Newville the same man who had recently helped him when his team had been stranded. Felix went to see the commander of the first Russian army, General Horwa. Felix tried reasoning with the general, but he would not be moved. Felix brought up the international publicity the race was bringing to Russia. The general didn't care. So Felix decided to start name-dropping. He mentioned the intense interest the Grand Duke Sergei Mikhailovich had in the race. The Duke was not only the General of the Artillery and a member of the Russian Committee overseeing the New York to Paris race. Not only did he have heavy influence in Moscow, he was also a Romanov, the cousin of Tsar Nicholas II. The Romanovs had ruled Russia for almost three centuries by the time of this race. Ten years later, in 1918, the Romanov family would be murdered by Bolshevik revolutionaries. But here, in 1908, dropping any name associated with the Romanov was a way to make yourself heard. Except with General Horwath, who still refused to allow the cars to use the tracks. Felix decided that if he couldn't move the general to give his permission, he would find someone who could. The racers needed to go over the general's head. The Duke had already given orders for any train he was on to immediately stop if any of the race cars were spotted. He was eager to see them for himself. Luckily, Lieutenant Kopen from the German team was in a town a mere 15 miles away from the Duke's next scheduled train stop. The Protos was stuck, completely grounded, and currently in need of repairs that would take too long to fix in time to meet the Duke. 
So the town's mayor borrowed two horses and rode into the town of Harbin with Copen to meet the duke. General Horwath, the man who had just denied them access to the railway, was also there to meet the duke. Copen, decked out in his Prussian army uniform, was introduced to the 39-year-old cousin of the Tsar. Polite, thin, with an army uniform and a symmetrically pointed beard, the duke was intimidating, but approachable. Copen offered to give him a tour of the broken-down Protos 15 miles away. The duke, beaming with excitement, instantly agreed. The duke would need to ride a horse, retracing Copen's route back to the car, but that was fine by him. The train would wait for its duke. So perhaps at the chagrin of General Horwath, Copen once again was causing railway delays. The general accompanied Copen and the duke to go see the car. The Protos and Flyer had tried covering their routes on land while they were denied railroad access. For this reason, the Protos was currently trapped in a mud hole. Copen took this as an opportunity to show the Duke how impossible the route would be without the use of the railway. Copen then said aloud how he wished they could be granted permission to use the tracks once again by the general so they could avoid unfortunate situations and unnecessary delays just like this one. The Duke immediately turned to the general and told him the New York to Paris cars would be given that permission. If Copen had had a mic, he would have dropped it right there. The permission did come with a new rule. While a car was using the tracks, it had to be accompanied by a railroad official carrying portable telegraph equipment so they could report their exact positions at regular intervals. After a few photos, the Duke was on his way, and the Protos, eventually, was too. The Americans were now six days behind the Germans. Remember, the Protos had to arrive in Paris a full 30 days before the flyer in order to win. There was a lot of ground left to cover in Russia, and with each American mishap, the German lead grew. Copen must have been calculating his increased chances for a victory. Neither the Americans or the Germans were concerned with the status of the Italian Zeust, which was by now about a thousand miles behind the Protos. Just as his confidence was flourishing at his growing lead, Copen's Protos hit a snag 11 miles before they reached the train tracks. Not so much a snag as the middle of a river he shouldn't have tried to drive through. He thought if he gave it enough gas, he could just power through the water. He was incorrect. The radiator fell off when the car hit the water, plus a spring snapped, making it impossible for the rear axle to move. Someone would have to go for help. That someone was Rittmeister von Albrecht, the increasingly less optimistic railway worker who had ridden with the German team since Vladivostok. He left with a local guide for Jekechi, the nearest town with a train stop. The guide assured everyone they would be back by 5 p.m. that evening. I know you know by now that any time anyone has been certain of something in this race, it meant disaster was soon to follow. Rittmeister von Albrecht and his guide became lost almost immediately. Meanwhile, clueless and waiting, the other three men sat wondering how they were going to get their car out of the water. While they were mulling through ideas, they began hearing the sound of bells 
which turned out to be a collection of approaching horse-drawn caravans. Inside were several families. Their greeting was gruff, the men seemed to all be drunk, and they wouldn't say who they were, just that they were immigrants to the region. Copen didn't mind the drunkenness or the gruffness. He wanted their horses to pull them out of the water. Neither side could really communicate well with the other, but Copen managed to signal that he'd pay 10 rubles for their help. Today, that'd be somewhere around 15 cents. Try as they might, the small horses couldn't pull the protos free, but their owners still wanted the money for trying. Copen and the men of the caravan were just about to resort to fisticuffs when the women, who'd had enough of this nonsense, told the men to get back into the caravans. They did, and whatever destruction would have otherwise unfolded was averted. The men in the protos, who were so outnumbered, were lucky those women knew how to control their tempers. By 8pm, the three of them knew Rittmeister von Albrecht and his guide were lost. Copen set out alone to find them. By midnight, he too was hopelessly lost. He was thirsty, tired, and scared. He was thousands of miles from home, trapped in darkness with no idea where he was. He wrote of his desperation, quote, The blackest visions overcame me. Around 2 a.m., after hours of aimless wandering, he was overjoyed to see the outlines of riders in the distance, thinking this must be the rescue party von Albrecht had summoned. He called them over before he realized they were Tungu's riders, the sort they had been warned of before they'd left Vladivostok. There were six of them, all on horseback. They looked huge, wrapped in layers of warm clothing, and Copen could see that every one of them was armed. All he could do was hope they didn't know he was with the race. He gestured frantically, speaking in as much broken Russian and Chinese as he could, which wasn't much. They just stared at him, as if deciding what to do with him. He mentioned the name of the town Jakechi, where von Albrecht had gone. They knew the name and communicated they could take him there if he had money. Copen agreed, as he had several thousand rubles on him. The riders didn't know how much he had, but now they knew he had something. It was clear they weren't interested in being his guides. They climbed down from their horses and began circling him, closing in around him in an ever-tightening loop. Copen kept skirting to the side, forward, backward, any way he could to avoid being surrounded completely. It was six to one. Panicked and not sure what else to do, Copen pulled his pistol out of his jacket and fired several shots into the air. He knew then, if he had to, he'd put the next round through whichever rider was closest. All six of them had guns. Perhaps they weren't loaded, perhaps they were surprised this lone wanderer was armed. Whatever the reason, the six riders scrambled onto the backs of their horses and fled. Copen quickly reloaded in case of a regroup. He set off in the direction he'd hoped was correct until two hours later, at 4 a.m., he saw a red light in the distance. He decided to follow it. Miraculously, it was the light of the railway station in Jakechi. 
He said later that walking into that station was one of the happiest moments of his life. The next morning, a detachment of soldiers was sent to rescue the Protos. The lost von Albrecht was finally found. He'd made it to the wrong town the night before. He was brought to the Jakechi train station, where, according to Fenster, he sat drinking vodka, smoking cigarettes, and vowing he would never ride in another automobile for the rest of his life. That vow didn't last long, as he begrudgingly got back into the Protos. Once they arrived in Chichta, von Albrecht decided he'd had enough. His sister lived there, and as far as he was concerned, it was as good a place as any to leave the insanity of this race. Von Albrecht got out of the Protos and never got back in. Although they'd lost von Albrecht, the team did get some good news. The Trans-Siberian Railway had offered a $1,000 prize to the car that reached Chichta first. Kopin, a man who was funding this trip entirely himself, was not only happy to win that $1,000 for financial reasons, but for validation. All across the U.S., he'd been in last place. Now, after pushing the car and everyone in it for 18 to 20 hours a day, he was in the lead, and he had 1000 bucks to prove it. Despite Kopin's push for endurance, Schuster and the Americans in the flyer were gaining ground. They had cut Kopin's six-day lead down to three. By the time the flyer reached Cheetah, it was down to two. In the city, Schuster was frustrated at having to wait six hours for a shipment of gasoline. To make up time, he refused to stop driving for 54 hours. Kopin had two drivers who could take turns sharing the burden of driving. Schuster refused to let anyone else drive the flyer. In that 54-hour span, the only breaks he had were for ferry crossings or quick stops. And that was the only time he slept. He wanted nothing to slow them down, although once he did stop when a young colt started chasing the car. Not wanting the young horse to become lost from its mother, Schuster got out of the flyer, fitted the animal with a makeshift halter, and led it back home. Compassion is always a good reason for a pit stop. Moments in deeds like that, in the midst of frustration and seemingly dire circumstances, rekindle my faith in humanity. There's good stuff out there happening too. Schuster began succumbing to exhaustion, falling asleep twice over his lunch of bread crust and boiled eggs. In one town, he learned after more than two days of driving, he hadn't gained an inch on Copen. At least some of his disappointment was washed away when he beheld for the first time the epic majesty of Lake Baikal. At 1,640 meters, or almost 5,400 feet, this is the deepest lake on planet Earth. It's also one of the largest and oldest. It's so colossally huge, it even has its own species of freshwater seal. More than half of the species who call that lake home can't be found anywhere else on the planet. And it's gorgeous on top of all of that. It's so clear that on a good day, you can see 40 meters below the surface. It was a shockingly breathtaking picture to behold. According to Fenster, the ancient Mongols called it the Holy Sea. Copen wrote of the first time he saw it, quote, 
Like a real ocean, the waves were huge on its broad surface. Far in the background, from high mountains and snow-covered peaks, the sun was just going down and musical streams of light danced on the white and green watercaps, which we observed with speechless amazement from the forest. We just watched this natural wonder in awe." Unquote. Unfortunately, it was right in their way. They would have to drive along its winding banks until they found a ferry in Nisawoya, which Felix had advised them to use for a crossing. When the Germans showed up, ready to be loaded onto the ferry at 8 a.m., they learned it wasn't there anymore. It had been moved 20 miles away. The intel Felix had was pre-railroad. According to Fenster, before the Circumbicall Railway was established in 1903, entire trains were loaded onto ships and ferries over the lake. The only way for a car to get across Lake Baikal from where they were was to take a ferry in the town of Tancholi. The only way for a car to get to Tancholi was to first take a train from Misawoya, the ferry's old location. Copen didn't want to wait for a train. He wanted to drive over the tracks, which would include a drive over a bridge until he reached the ferry. He waited 36 hours for permission. After his long wait, permission was denied. If he wanted to continue his trek across Russia, he would have to load his car onto a train first. He begrudgingly obliged since there was nothing else he could do. Just after the three-ton Protos was loaded onto the train, Copen saw a familiar sight. The Americans in the Thomas Flyer had been relentlessly bearing down on his lead for the 36 hours he'd been waiting for permission to use the tracks. The Germans had kept a steady lead the entire way across Siberia. Now they were once again at the same starting line. Schuster and his team couldn't make the same train as Copen, as it was set to depart in four minutes. Copen and Schuster exchanged polite greetings, and Copen assured the Americans he would wait for them in the city of Irkutsk, just across the water, so they could all start the race anew. So far, the two leading cars had covered 1,872 difficult Siberian miles. That's just over 3,000 kilometers. That meant they were a third of the way across Russia. The Italian Zeust was still 450 miles, or around 725 kilometers, behind them. Neither the Americans or the Germans lost much sleep on the whereabouts of the Italian team. They were too hyper-focused on one another, almost obsessively so. For the leaders, it wasn't so much Germany versus the US, or the Protos versus the Thomas Flyer. It was Köppen versus Schuster. This race felt more and more personal. June 21st, well over four months since they'd left New York, Köppen was on the two-hour ferry ride over Lake Baikal. He soon arrived in the city of Irkutsk, where he'd promised Schuster he'd wait for him. Turns out, Köppen's promises had an expiration date of around two hours. He didn't keep his word. Instead, he used the opportunity to once again take the lead, the same way he had in Vladivostok. The Americans arrived not long after the Germans, and the race began again with the flyer a half day behind the Protos. After crossing Lake Baikal, there was a shift in both scenery and road conditions. 
They were trading the muddy, thawed landscape of eastern Siberia for monotonously long spans of grasslands. The same scenery for so long caused the Germans to hyperfixate on their homesickness as the Americans smoldered with irritability at being stuck in second place. Stress and overexertion were taking a real toll on Schuster, to the point that his teammates were starting to have concerns about safety. His teammate and reporter, George McAdam, wrote of it, quote, On the Thomas car, George Schuster, who took charge of the auto in San Francisco, has been driving exclusively on the journey through Asia. The strain of the actual work at the wheel and the vigilance necessary to escape danger combined with the lack of rest and good food, has so worn upon him that he falls asleep whenever possible, often at the banks of rivers while waiting for ferries. The strain, taken in connection with the number of narrow escapes the Thomas crew has had, has apparently affected even Schuster's strong nerves." Unquote. Schuster was being unnecessarily possessive when it came to driving. He refused to let anyone else take the wheel, even when he was exhausted but a human body can only be pushed so far. Eventually, Schuster had to rest for the night. If he'd simply stopped being so controlling and allowed someone else to drive, he could have slept in the car while his team continued to shorten the gap between themselves and the protos. Instead, when he stopped, everyone stopped, and it cost them time. Copen was able to extend his lead into a full day due simply to Schuster's time-consuming stubbornness. But at least now, there were road signs. This path had been well-traveled for centuries, having been part of an ancient tea route, and the way to Moscow was mercifully marked. For most of the journey, maps had been non-existent, and getting lost had been part of the process. All the cars utilized compasses, but that alone was rarely enough. According to historian Dr. Satara Janda, Schuster had even resorted to using a sextant for navigation that he had crafted himself, and on clear nights they had the stars to help guide their way. The morale in the flyer was fading, mostly due to Schuster's all-consuming need for control. Hansen, their interpreter, left when they were 450 miles from the town where his wife and daughter lived. McAdam also left because he needed a break. Both promised to return to the race refreshed. Schuster didn't much care by that point if either one of them returned. While those two were gone, Schuster finally decided to let the other mechanic, George Miller, drive. The two alternated, which was obviously a better arrangement than having one stubborn guy white-knuckling the entire way across Asia. In the city of Tomsk, both Hansen and McAdam did return to the race. Now that driving was alternated, the Americans were able to catch the Germans. Copen was disheartened to turn around and see them in the distance, gaining on him. Soon after spotting them, the flyer passed the Protos for the first time in 2,000 miles. Due to mechanical issues, that 30-second lead turned into a three-day lead by the time the Americans reached the city of Omsk. The string of quick and temporary fixes they'd made to the Protos throughout the race had acted as band-aids for the German car but now a serious overhaul was needed, which stopped the German team for several days. 
In Omsk, Schuster tried to find the new transmission he'd requested weeks ago from Buffalo, but it was nowhere to be found. The Americans would have to hope their transmission could hold out until they could locate their new one, which was somewhere within the six and a half million square miles of Russia. At least the way ahead promised far better conditions than the way behind them. Schuster would have to just hope they could make it without their lost transmission. And they did, for about 30 miles. The flyer broke down in a swamp, and the Americans had to go back to Omsk, and, through a series of telegrams, try and find out where in the world their transmission was. The German Protoss was also hobbling into Omsk. After receiving a few repairs, they could have easily taken back the lead, if it weren't for the fact that one of their drivers, Neuberger, came down with malaria. There was a second driver on the German team, Fuchs, but he came down with something they described as simply an intestinal fever. Copen, who had not driven for even one day this whole time, had no choice but to wait for his drivers to heal. In the meantime, while his competitors were busy trying not to die, he went sightseeing. He also had dinner one night with his competition, George Schuster. The two were competitors, but they also shared a connection. They wanted the same thing, they had gone through some of the same trauma on and off the road, and dinner actually turned out to be a cordial, fun respite from the race. Copen told Schuster openly, quote, If the Protoss arrives in Paris a week after you, it will be no disgrace, considering what we have gone through. If it hadn't been for the looming and then horrendous events of World War I, which would unfold a mere six years from that shared dinner, those two very well could have had a lifelong friendship. After dinner, Schuster sent Hansen, his only translator, on a long railway mission to find the flyer's transmission. Hansen would stop everywhere on the way to Moscow looking for it. In the meantime, the three Georges on the American team made the repairs they could and left a day ahead of Copen. Copen's drivers recuperated enough to get back on the road, and they left too, heading for Moscow. Eventually, Felix, their French connection, located the flyer's transmission. It was in the city of Kassan. Kassan was not on the route Schuster had originally planned, but the detour was necessary. There was no way they would make it to Paris without a new transmission. After receiving the message from Felix, Schuster received another telegram. This one from the Thomas Company in Buffalo. He was told their original driver, who was also a professional driver, Montague Roberts, was done competing in the Grand Prix, which he did not win, and was willing to come back to the team and drive. Monty, as he was known, and George Schuster had become good friends during the U.S. leg of the race. Monty only had glowing things to say about Schuster, and vice versa. But now, after seeing his name in the papers, having grown to like the limelight and his authority as captain, Schuster wanted nothing to do with his old friend, Monty. He was afraid that if Monty returned, everyone would forget the work he'd put in since he'd taken over as captain, and he didn't want someone else getting the credit. There was no way he was going to let someone else drive the flyer into Paris. In the end, ego won over friendship and Schuster made it clear that Monty would not 
be rejoining his crew. The road was easier now, and the countryside more developed and populated. Both the lead teams were making better time, but their receptions into small towns wasn't as friendly. People threw rocks at their cars as they passed, shook their fists at them in anger, and even threw glass in the road to hinder the race's progress. On this side of the Ural Mountains, life was complicated, and the people were experiencing their own set of problems, both social and political. Revolution was only nine years away. They were not interested in outsiders or in whatever this race was. Several of the competitors wrote of the stark differences between life on either side of the Ural Mountains. Before the Americans could reach their new transmission in Kassan, they hit a huge pothole that finally killed their old one. Schuster journeyed the rest of the way to Kassan via train to bring back their new transmission, which weighed hundreds of pounds. In all, it would be a five-day trip. While he was gone, McAdam and Miller stayed with the flyer. Hansen, unaware of any of this, was still on his way to Moscow looking for the same transmission Schuster was heading for in Kassan. While Miller and McAdam waited in the small town, the villagers were curious about these strange foreigners. They stared at them while they ate, and even while they slept, which must have felt super creepy. Their sleeping was done in the hayloft of a local barn, since the beds at the village's inn had been infested with several different species of bugs. Those few days were exactly what Copen needed to retake the lead. McAdam and Miller watched as the Protoss flew through the village. Then on his way back from Kassan, Schuster saw the Protoss careening down the road as he was enjoying a cup of tea with the driver of the team of horses pulling his new transmission. He knew he was once again in second place. By the time the flyer was fixed, the Germans were ahead by two days. Copen hit Moscow first, on July 18th, where the Protoss got a much-needed tune-up. Two days later, he reached St. Petersburg, which garnered him another $1,000 prize. The roads from here to Paris would be phenomenal, and mostly paved. This was the home stretch and the Protoss was soaring through every mile. Meanwhile, the American car, which was still without Hansen, its only translator, kept getting lost, because even road signs can't always help when you can't read or speak the language they're written in. Copen had a three-day lead by the time the flyer drove into Moscow. The route from Moscow to Paris was roughly the same distance as the drive from Vladivostok, where they had started in Russia, to the ferry at Lake Baikal. That journey had taken them a month. The roads from St. Petersburg to Paris were so much better that this time, the journey would only take a week. Before entering France, the cars would pass through Germany. This was Copen's home. The anticipation of seeing his homeland after five and a half months of the most difficult journey of his life filled him with an interesting mix of apprehension and euphoria. When he crossed into Germany, thousands of people were there to cheer his arrival. He'd had no idea how closely his country had been following his progress. He had left Germany as a lieutenant, eager to prove himself. He returned a national hero. After everything he'd been through, that must have been quite a nice surprise. 
Hundreds of thousands of spectators brought together in cheering crowds lined the roads to Berlin. When they made it to Berlin, the crowd was at an estimated one million people. He was lifted out of the car, hoisted onto shoulders, and carried to meet his beamingly proud father. Not wanting to take all the credit, he vehemently reminded everyone how impossible his arrival would have been without his drivers Fuchs and Neuberger. This glittering image of a cheerful, colorful Germany is rather heartbreaking, because it was a Germany that wouldn't last. World War I was looming. 21 years after that, the devastating consequences of Nazi Germany would take the world into one of its darkest hours. But for now, hoisted upon his countrymen's shoulders on that day, Germany felt like the greatest place in the world to cope in. All he could do was enjoy it while it lasted. Meanwhile, the Americans were still in Russia, and so was the Italian Zeust. For the U.S. half of the race, the Zeust had stayed in a solid second place. In Russia, they were dragging in third. This was in large part due to their two-week delayed start from Vladivostok. If the other two cars had waited for the Italians to get their things in order, this race could have turned out very differently. The Zeust had hit as many roadblocks as the other teams, and now one of them, Haga, was sick. So sick that Scarfoglio, his last remaining teammate, couldn't continue the race until he found help for Haga. They had to stop in an outlying village. The closest doctor was 50 miles away. Scarfoglio wrote that Haga was suffering from what he believed was colic, but we have no way to know for sure if that's exactly what it was. It took days for the doctor to arrive to the small village where the two were waiting. They had been joined fleetingly by their newfound benefactor, the Russian Baron Scheinvogel, as promised. The Baron thought it would be fun to join the Italians in the race, even drive for a time. But the reality of adventure is often far less appealing than our romanticized expectations. He soon learned his idealization of the race had been a daydreamed illusion. As so many other short-lived Taggers-on had discovered, it was in reality a grueling, painful, lonely, agonizing long test of human endurance. And he quit fairly quickly, leaving the young Scarfoglio and Haga on their own. After a week of doctor visits and some bedside care from Scarfoglio, Haga was weak, but ready to ride once again. Of course, by then, they were so far behind, they could no longer hope for any place but last. That didn't matter, though. Finishing was the goal, and that they knew they could do. Now, the Americans were in St. Petersburg, three days behind Koppen, who was enjoying his term as hero in Berlin. Hansen had rejoined them in Moscow, which meant the Three Georges finally had their interpreter back, and the team of three was back up to four. Their three-day lag was technically a 27-day lead, since the Americans still had their 15-day advantage for having been the only car to make the journey to Alaska, and the Germans still had their 15-day penalty for skipping a huge chunk of the U.S. route via train. But winning by default wasn't good enough for Schuster. He wanted to drive into Paris first. The crew in the flyer was giving it everything they had, but they kept being held back by inconvenient happenstance. 
After crossing into Germany, they had to stop due to a leaking radiator. That fix would cost another day. The only way they could catch the Germans now would be if they too experienced delays from mechanical failure. Schuster was struggling so much at the thought of Copen beating him to Paris that he refused to either hear any news or pick up any of his messages along the route. He didn't want to know anything about the whereabouts of the Germans lest he hear they'd arrived in Paris first. Fenster wrote of this well when she said, quote, He just kept on driving in ignorance, the last luxury of the desperate, unquote. By the time Schuster reached Berlin, Copen and the Protos had crossed into France. And just like that, unbelievably, miraculously, in an otherworldly state known only to those who have clung desperately onto a dream only to see it realized against every odd, Paris came into view. It's hard to know what Copen and his team felt as they drove into Paris after crossing three continents something no one else had ever done in an automobile. The finish line was the street in front of the office building of Le Matin, the French newspaper that had sponsored the race along with the New York Times. According to Fenster, they had covered 8,280 miles since arriving in Vladivostok. That's over 13,325 kilometers. But that was just the distance they'd traveled since landing in Russia. In all, they had made it 21,933 miles, or approximately 35,298 kilometers. It had taken almost six months. They did all of this without power steering, gas stations, roadmaps, highways, headlamps since the Rockies, or a windshield. They had suffered through malaria, kidnapping plots, hundreds of mechanical failures, Bandits, mud, blizzards, deserts, including Death Valley, bogs, quicksand, sabotage, and a level of homesickness that felt at times as if it were tearing them in two. And still, they had done it. The Protos was in Paris at last. Of course, this didn't automatically make them the winners, as they were docked 15 days for skipping that huge leg of the U.S. route. The flyer, with its 15-day bonus, could arrive up to 30 days later and still win. But it wouldn't be the win they'd really wanted. The race from Vladivostok to Paris felt like a whole new race in its own right, with both the Germans and Americans fighting to arrive in Paris first. Anything less felt in some way like second place. For Copen, he knew the Americans were coming. They had already entered France on July 29th. He knew, on paper, that he had lost. And he did skip a huge portion of the race in the U.S., which meant he'd covered thousands of miles less than the Americans had. But that didn't matter. For him, Paris was enough. The evening of July 30th, Schuster was at the wheel in a haze of exhaustion. The Americans knew they were approaching Paris, not because of the road signs, but because of the crowds. When people heard of the flyer's approach, bicyclists began riding alongside them, and huge crowds came out to cheer their arrival. Then, there it was, the City of Lights. They had taken just about the longest possible route they could have to get there. 
just before the flyer rolled up to the offices of Le Matin with the same battered American flag it had carried the whole way, ending their 169-day adventure. They were told they were being arrested. Because nothing in this race came easily. The car had lost its headlights somewhere along the route, and it was illegal in Paris to drive at night without a light. The crowds booed the arresting officer, but he was unmoving. Just as it seemed there would never be an end to this odyssey, a man on a bicycle rode up, hopped off, took the headlight from his bicycle, and placed it on the hood of the Thomas Flyer, which now, technically, wasn't breaking any laws. That was good enough for the officer, and the Americans were allowed to finish the Great Race of 1908. And they hadn't just finished, they had won. Once at the offices of Le Matin, the crew had to fight through a crowd to make it inside, where bottles of champagne were followed by days of celebration, and finally a real, non-moving, clean, and comfy bed. That night, as he fell asleep after almost six months of exhaustion, George Schuster was the happiest man in Paris. This race had a huge impact on the future of the automobile, which had now proven itself to be a reliable mode of transportation as long as you didn't think too much about how much it had relied on horses. It also increased the popularity of American cars, which until now had been seen as inferior to those of a European build. According to the New York Times, American sales flourished in the following years. The race also brought attention to the poor state of America's roads, inciting biting editorials on the subject, which launched a huge push to invest in the country's roads. Two years later, asphalt was invented, and the Lincoln Highway, America's first transcontinental road, broke ground in 1912. That road started in Times Square and ended in San Francisco. According again to the New York Times, that was not a coincidence. While Copen, Schuster, and their teammates were happy, well-fed, and rested in Paris, the Italians in the Zeust hadn't even made it to Moscow. That's where they learned they had officially lost. Haga and Scarfoglio were only 23 years old. Their brains didn't even have fully developed frontal lobes yet. These were kids taking on the most difficult auto race in history. I want to quote Fenster here, because she describes the race and Scarfoglio and Haga's grit better than I can. She writes, quote, No one who started the New York to Paris race realized how agonizing and exhausting it would be. The millions of people who followed the progress of the race probably never really understood that aspect of it, for all the first-hand reporting from the course. They didn't have to, though, to understand what it meant to drive from New York to Paris. At some point in their lives, each one had started something, big or small, that turned out to be too much, too hard, and too frustrating at every turn. The real trial of any endeavor is how easy it is to buckle, to make up a lie to suit oneself and a plausible excuse to suit everyone else. That was the anguish of the New York to Paris race, for all the world to see. In sheer hard work, 
it was the equal of any of the world's pioneering challenges. But what may have made it the cruelest of all, and also the most representative of the dramas of everyday life, was that it was far and away the easiest to quit. And that is what Scarfoglio and Haga never did." Unquote. The two had started this thing together as strangers. 48 days after the Thomas Flyer had won, those two 23-year-olds drove into Paris as friends. They didn't finish for a prize or for money. There was no prize or money for them to win. They finished because they said they would. After the race, Scarfoglio went back to his job as a journalist. He wrote a book on the race called Round the World in a Motor Car. Lieutenant Copin went back to the Prussian army. He wrote a book, too, about his experiences, and it sold well, helping to alleviate the debt he was in after funding the whole thing on his own. It was a bestseller. He got a promotion and married the next year. Then, World War I. He fought for Germany and survived. According to Fenster, he held a staff position with the Luftwaffe before and during World War II, which he also survived. He retired in 1944 and died in 1948 at 71, with his country in shambles. George Schuster finally got to go home. He was paid $1,650 by the Thomas Company, as well as a $1,000 bonus, not the $10,000 one he was hoping for. The race had cost the company $100,000. Schuster returned to his position at the Thomas Company, where six months before, after an unexpected phone call to adventure, he'd packed his life into a suitcase with 24 hours notice to drive across half the world. The Thomas Company promised him, in lieu of better pay, that he was guaranteed a lifelong job with the company. But the Thomas Company was ultimately unable to compete for long in the American market, especially after Henry Ford's introduction of the cheaper Model T was introduced. They went bankrupt five years later in 1913. The Thomas Flyer that had wowed the world was auctioned off. Then, something beautiful happened. Half a century later, in the 1960s, George Schuster received an invitation. It was from a William Hara, a car collector who was almost certain he'd just found the Thomas Flyer. He flew the 91-year-old George Schuster out to examine the car. He saw the familiar cracks in the frame, even some of the repairs he'd made. As he reached out and ran his hands over the old hunk of metal, he knew it was his flyer. Schuster outlived everyone else from the race, passing away at the age of 98 in 1973. On his gravestone, there is an etching of the Thomas Flyer in the words, George Schuster, driver of the Thomas Flyer and winner of the 1908 New York to Paris auto race. As for the Flyer itself, it has been restored and currently sits in its own special exhibit in the National Automobile Museum in Reno, Nevada. George Schuster was inducted into the Automotive Hall of Fame in 2010 for the race and for being the first person ever to drive a car across the U.S. successfully in the winter. Now he, the Flyer, 
The memories, pictures, conversations, frustrations, joys, the drivers, passengers, witnesses, and even the horses, whose lives seem to us a flash, a blip kept safe somewhere between now and then, rest wrapped in the memoried arms of history. That brings this series to an end. It was a long one, 86 pages single-spaced long. At times, it felt it was almost as long as the race itself. I cannot thank you enough for sticking with me. This finale is one of the longest episodes ever in the history of this podcast, but it was either finish this thing with a long one or do another episode, and I did promise last time that I'd get you all to the end. So, you got a two-for-one. It was a long ride, but I couldn't have asked for better company. I'll be back again in three weeks with more history for you. If you like the show, please consider rating and following on iTunes or wherever you listen. This really helps make the show more visible. Until then, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can email me at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to help support the show, you can check out my Patreon page at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. You can also make a one-time donation. You can access the link for that on the website under the support tab. That website is historycashpodcast.podbean.com. Background music and sound effects are licensed through Envato Elements, theme song through Audio Jungle. Stay safe, stay smart, stay curious. And until we meet again, my dear friends, Go make some history.